You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice that we can relate to you as Father because you sent your Son and that your Spirit bears witness with our spirit and urges us, compels us to relate to you as Father, to welcome us into your family, God. We thank you for the construct of uh, the family that you have designed, Lord, that, that you have eternally existed in the context of a family, Father relating to Son, and that you created Adam and Eve and encouraged them to be fruitful and to uh, multiply, Lord. And uh, Adam and Eve built a family, a family that was that, that was uh, no doubt, Lord, conscious of pain and of suffering and of loss, but also of joy. And so, God, on this day, on Mother's Day, Lord, we celebrate and we give thanks, Lord, for the, the mothers in our church, Lord. I thank you for my mother, for my uh, mother-in-law, Lord. God, we, we celebrate and rejoice in all of the mothers who are present here. But Lord, we know that a day like today, God, just like the very first family, Adam and Eve, Lord, we know that there are mothers here today who have had to bury one of their own children. We know that there are families here today that are, are spread across the oceans from one another, where the parents are on one end of the world and the children are on another. We pray for comfort and for strength for them, Lord. God, we pray for those who are longing to be mothers. And, and a day like today is just another painful reminder of the struggle with infertility that so many of our uh, women are, are fighting. And I pray that you would comfort them. Lord, I know that there are brand new moms who are just trying to adjust to the pressures of sleeplessness and, and this new life that they're trying to care for. We know that there are single mothers who are just trying to, to uh, make things uh, work, Lord. And so, Father, we know, God, because we relate to you as Father, God, that even at this day where we celebrate mothers, Lord, the, the triumphs and the trials, the joy and the pain of family life, thank you that on this day, this Mother's Day, Lord, that this is a day that you have made and we choose to rejoice in it and that we celebrate motherhood today, ultimately, God, because you have chosen to relate to us as Father through your Son. And so, Father, we pray right now that as we open your word, that you would be present here with us, that you would speak with great clarity and power, Lord. And God, I believe this is a message that I, I need to hear and receive from you, and I believe that all of us, Lord, in our present situation need to hear this. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us minds to understand, that you would give us hearts to obey and to believe and to act on what you're telling us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. You can open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle to help you uh, with that. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand or a holler at them. Uh, we're in a series called Trusting God for More, which is really rooted in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, describing how God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And we are at this unique season where we're looking back on the past nine years, and we're looking back really in the last several weeks, 
and seeing that God truly has done far more abundantly than, than what we could have expected, than what we were thinking was going to happen. But in light of that, we're not just supposed to be gazing at the past and saying, wow, God's done some great things. We want to look to the future and trust that he will do far more abundantly in the future as we look back on all that he has done in uh, the past. And so what we've been doing is studying these different really threshold moments in the people of God where they're on the verge of doing something great, something that would require great risk, something that would require great the great faith and great trust. And we've been studying not so much what the people of God did, but what God revealed about himself that gave them the faith and the trust and the courage to do that. So the moment that we're going to study today is the call of Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. Now we don't make a habit of doing this at Harvest, but what I'd like to do right now is I'd like, as I read the passage, I want to invite everyone to stand with their Bible in their hand, open to Joshua chapter 1. Let's stand out of reverence uh, for God's word today. I'm going to read Joshua uh, chapter a one verses a one to nine. And after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Just say these five words with me in verse, in verse 9. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only say it again with me. Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Say it with me. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of God. Amen. Please be seated. Please be seated. So three times in this passage, God gives a very clear instruction. He tells Joshua, in this situation that you're facing right now, as you are preparing to go into the promised land right now, here is something I want you to hear, Joshua. I want you to be strong and courageous. The only way that you are going to be successful in the endeavor that you are setting out on is if you choose to be strong and courageous. Why is courage so crucial? Courage, as C.S. Lewis describes it in this way, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but, every, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. What does C.S. Lewis mean? 
He, he means that courage is not just something that's to be listed with, you know, love and kindness and charity and generosity and, and, and courage. No, courage isn't part of that list. What courage is, is those virtues brought to the breaking point. You see, you can think you're a loving person when you're around lovely people. And as long as everyone is lovable, it's no problem to be loving, but courage comes in when you start interacting with someone who is unlovely or someone who is not acting in a loving way towards you. When you're called upon to love your enemies, that's when courage comes in. It's, that virtue is brought to the testing point. You know, you can, be a, you can be a real generous person as long as you have lots of surplus and as long as the people who are asking you aren't asking you for very much. But courage comes in when you move from giving from your surplus to really thinking about sacrifice. That's generosity brought to the testing point. You can be a really honest person. You can have a reputation for just speaking your mind and telling the truth. But when telling the truth and being honest means that your neck is on the line, that your job is on the line, that your future is on the line, that's when courage is required. Anyone can speak the truth when it doesn't cost anything. But courage, courage is all virtues pushed to the testing point, the breaking point. And that is what God was calling Joshua to do. And loved ones, hear this. That is what God is calling us to do at the season that we are at as a church. And so today we're going to see three keys to living with courage. And we need to understand, listen, courage is really only necessary at, at important moments. If, if you're not having to regularly live with courage in your life, I'm sorry to say, chances are you're not really doing very many important things with your life. And at this crucial moment in Joshua's life, he's about to do something vitally important that's going to require courage because important moments normally have one of three characteristics. All important moments have some form of confusion. That it, to fully embrace the moment means that you're going to have to step into some sort of uncertainty. There's always confusion in important moments. Also, you can always expect confrontation at important moments. That there won't necessarily be someone who's always going to agree with you or side with you. And you're going to experience confrontation. So, we need courage. And then at important moments, there is always a counting of the cost. So for Joshua, as he was heading into the promised land, there was some confusion. How are we going to get across this river? How are we going to defeat these cities? How are we going to inhabit this land? There was confusion about the future. There was confrontation for sure, because there were people living in that territory. And there, there was a cost. There was a price that Joshua needed to pay. So all of us, as we are thinking about this, what's, what is God calling us to do? And are we going to trust him in the midst of the confusion? in the reality that there will be confrontation, and, and in the idea that there will be a personal cost involved in following God's way. So here's the th first of the, the three ways to live a life filled with courage. The first one is this, trust in God's promises. Trust God's promises. Verse 1 begins by saying, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, 
The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, your servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan. So it's made abundantly clear here. In, in, in verse 1, it's mentioned twice, Moses is dead. The narrator says it, then God reminds Moses of it. And Moses is this great, incredible leader. We studied him in the, in the previous message. At the appearance of the burning bush, God told Moses to go back to Egypt and to tell the people of Israel that it's time to go to the promised land and not just tell the people, but also tell the Pharaoh. And God did incredible things through Moses. I mean, the plague started coming, the water turned to blood, there's frogs in everyone's bed and there's boils on everyone's faces and then the Red Sea parts and, he, and, and then Mount Sinai comes and God thunders down and the mountain's on fire and he gives his Ten Commandments and then a month and a half later, after receiving the Ten Commandments, they break the first and most important commandment. They build a golden calf and start worshiping it. And rather than casting his back on the people of God in that moment, God showed Moses that he was gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. Even though because of their sin, God had every reason not to go with them. Moses said, God, you must go with us. And so God allowed for the tabernacle to be built, which was this tent, the, the symbolic presence of God. And that brought us to the end of the book of Exodus. Then the next book is Leviticus, which is really like the instruction manual for how to use the tabernacle and how to do sacrifices. And then after they've learned how to use the tabernacle, then it's time for them to get up and go. And that's what the book of Numbers is about. Numbers starts with a big list of all of the, all of the people of God. But then at, in, in, in the book of Numbers, they're at the border of the promised land. They're on the southern border. And they are, they are ready to go in and, go, and God has Moses send in some spies to go and check out the land. And 12 spies go in. Two of them thought it was great. One of them was Joshua. But 10 others gave a bad report and said, it's impossible. We can't do it. Even though God, you know, rescued us from the most powerful nation in the world and parted the Red Sea and has provided for us and all these miracles. Now, now we can't trust him for any more. And so the people rebelled against God, which meant that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And that's, that's what the, the book, book of Numbers is about. They're, they're wandering around as that generation dies out. Then the book of Deuteronomy means second law. And that was Moses' second teaching, his, his rehashing of what God's law was. And, and now at the end of Deuteronomy, they are on the plains of Moab. They are on the, uh, they're on the eastern border of the promised land. And Deuteronomy ends with Moses dying. And then Joshua chapter 1 begins with a reminder of Moses dying. You think about the pressure that would have been on Joshua in this moment to fill the shoes of the greatest leader their nation had ever seen. And all of the miracles, and all of the, all of the leadership, all of, all, all of the wisdom Everything that Moses brought to every situation, now all of that pressure was being brought on Joshua. But isn't it amazing how God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go. He doesn't say, you know what, Joshua, you should probably take some time. He doesn't say, maybe you should pull the people and say, you know, hey, do you guys still up for this whole promised land thing? Because this is a big deal. I mean, your leader is dead. See, but here's the thing. It's about trusting in his promises. We trust his promises. We don't trust in his servants. 
You see, look, 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 look at the chain of command here in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, Moses was just doing what God told him to do. It wasn't about Moses, it was about God. Then the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. So God told Moses what to do, and Moses then told Joshua what to do. And we think when we hear about you know, a great leader passing away, someone like, someone like Billy Graham passing away out recently, we, we think, well, who's going to carry the torch? Who's going to lead? Who's going to preach the gospel? When we hear about these tragic failings and, and, and failures of, of, of influential, world-known pastors and leaders, and we think, well, who's going to replace them now that they've been removed from ministry because, because of their failure, because of their sin? Who's going to, and, and sometimes the church, can just be like, oh, what's going to happen? We don't, we don't have our leader anymore. And God's just like a coach on a hockey team being like, okay, he's coming off. You hop over the boards. We're just changing on the fly. The, 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 the game is still going on. And so, listen, God loved Moses and he called Moses and he used Moses. Now Moses is with God, but God's up there telling Joshua, now it's your turn. And Joshua, once you're done, it's going to be someone else's turn. I mean, the book is called Joshua, but he's not the main character of the book, is he? It's God who's doing the work. And so we don't trust in God's servants. We trust in his promises. And he was calling Joshua to do something. I mean, he, God says it so matter-of-factly in verse 2, go over this Jordan. Well, how? Was he going to build a bridge or a barge or a fleet of boats? I mean, how is he going to go over this massive river that lies between where they are and where the promised land is? But God had a plan for that, didn't he? he Moses, Moses brought them to this point, and now Joshua was going to have to trust that God would get them across that river. And then he says, and go into the land that I am giving you that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. So not only did they have a big river they had to deal with, they had a big city, big, a big city like Jericho. How are they ever going to invade a city like Jericho? You see, a lot of the nations living in that area were warrior nations. They had lived there a long time. They had fought a whole bunch of battles before. They had chariots and weapons. They had strategies. They had, it was, there was a warrior culture. The soldier fathers brought up their sons to be able to fight. Think about Israel's culture and Israel's background. They were a small shepherding community of about 70 people, just a large family. And then they moved to Egypt. And what were they doing for the past 400 years? Making bricks out of straw. They had no experience in the battlefield. They had no military history to look back on. They had, they, it was not part of their culture. They knew how to make bricks. And God was saying, no, now the bricks in these walls need to come down. Well, how are they going to do that? But God was going to be with them, and they needed to be trusting God for more. Sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where we think, I don't have the skills to do this. I, I, don't, I don't even know where to begin in how to be faithful with what God has trusted me in. You know, it's, it's Mother's Day. I think about when we, when we brought Ezra, our oldest, home. Like, there's no parenting manual, right? You, you, you try to read some books, but they don't make you take a course and get a degree in being a parent. No, you just kind of have to trust God and figure it out, don't you? And in the same way, there's so much in life, most of the important things that we do, there's an element of confusion. 
There's an element of how is this going to work? I mean, Moses was a rock-solid, stable leader for four decades, and now he's gone. And yes, the people of Israel, they'd fought a few battles, but not many. How were they going to conquer all of these nations? They were going to do it by trusting in God's promises. At the end of verse 2, he says, this is the land that I am giving to them. It's kind of present tense. I'm giving it. It's happening right now. But then look at verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Past tense. This is the way God's promises work. As it's unfolding, we can trust and believe that it's already happening. I'm giving it to you, and by the way, I've already given. But I haven't given it until the sole of your foot actually goes there. The going comes as part of the giving. Our stepping out and trusting in God's promises is the means by which God has chosen to fulfill them. And they're not fulfilled by being stationary and standing still. No, God calls his people to go. When God wants something important done, he calls his people to go. He called Abraham to go from where he was into the land of Canaan. He called Moses to go from Midian back to Egypt, and then from Egypt to the promised land. He's calling Joshua to go. You're on this side of the river, you need to go over there. He's calling Pastor Marv and Kim and their family and those who are going with them to go to North Toronto and to start a church. when, When God wants something important done, so often he calls people to go. Sometimes it's, it's physical, it's, it's, it's geographical. Other times it's just assessing, this is where my comfort zone is, and I need to go to a place that is outside of that to trust in God's promises. And then at the end of verse 3, after he says, every sole of your foot, sorry, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, he says, just as I, here it is, promised. I promised. Just as I promised to Moses, I am going to promise you now, Joshua. The plan is still the same. The players in the game have changed, but the objective remains the same. Then he gives the geographical details in verse 4. From the wilderness of this Lebanon, as far as the great river, from the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. How's that for a promise? I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And he says, be strong and courageous. So God tells Joshua what he needs to do. And then he he finally encourages him. After giving all of the details, he concludes by saying, be strong and courageous. And each time God says, be strong and courageous, it's, it's highlighting something that he's, he's calling on Joshua to do. Go into the land, but go trusting in my promises. I've promised this to Moses, and I will be with you just like I was with Moses, so you can be strong and courageous. You see, for Joshua, God was encouraging him to take that first step. You know, the first step is always the hardest. In, in, in just about everything, it's always the hardest. You know, young men, you're sort of re- 
might be romantically interested in another young woman, the, the, the hardest step is that step towards her and to begin a conversation with her and to start the pursuit. Once the pursuit starts, it's kind of fun, it's kind of exciting, but that first step is the hardest. Talk about confusion, right? How's she gonna react? How's she gonna respond? Listen, she's waiting for you right now. And God's telling you, be strong and courageous. Take that step. To get into a witnessing conversation, you know what, I'm great talking about the gospel once the conversation gets starting and I start to feel the flow and to start getting questions and answers, but listen, when you're at the park pushing one swing with another parent, pushing their kid on a swing, to try to transition that conversation into a spiritual conversation, so... Do you know what John 3.16 says? <laughs> that first step is always the hardest. To really, to really be vulnerable. And to really tell someone who truly loves you and cares about you that you are secretly struggling with a sin that's, that's destroying you. Listen, once you say it, there will be a, a burden lifted off of your shoulders. But it's so hard to say, you know, I, can I just talk to you? Can I just share something that's happening in my life? It's always the first step that's the hardest. And so God says, be strong and be courageous because I will be with you. So trust in God's promises because how we relate to God will determine the distance or the in our lives between courage and cowardice. Be strong and courageous. Trust in him. He's faithful to fulfill his promises. Then in verse seven he says, be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. Here's the second key to living with courage. It's trust, it's obey God's word. So trust his promises and then obey his word. And he says, be strong and be very courageous. And he says, be careful to do. He repeats it again in verse eight. Be careful to do all that I have commanded. And then he, the end result, look down at the end of verse eight. He says, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Keeping the word, obeying the word, following God's command, God says the result will be that you will be prosperous and will have good success. That phrase, good success, is used uh, twice in this passage. If you look back at verse 7, there should, if you have an ESV Bible, there should be a footnote there. To have good success, another way to translate it would be to act wisely. To live the way you're supposed to live. So it's not success in the way that we would normally think about success. No, it's to, we read the word, we study the word, we obey the word so that we would live the way we're supposed to live. We would act wisely. We would have success. But then I want to spend a little bit of time on this word prosperous at the end of verse 8 because this passage has been hijacked by people who want to preach what's called the prosperity gospel. 
that if you do certain things, that God is then somehow obligated to reward you financially. And it normally goes this way. Someone stands up at the front with a Bible in their hand that's not opened, and they try to explain, and they zero in on a word like prosperity, and they say, what you need to do is obey God's word. And God's word says that you're supposed to give and sow seeds. And so all of you need to make a big offering. And if you make a big offering, then God will bless you, and he will make you prosperous. I mean, look at me. I'm prosperous. The only difference is, is the reason why he's prosperous is because everyone's making donations to him. And so I did some study this week on what, what does that word prosperous actually mean. It occurs about 70 times in the Old Testament. Almost never is that word used to describe anything to do with finances. To be prosperous, what this word means is to have an objective, to have a goal, to have a task that you are responsible for completing. And to be prosperous means that you complete the task. It's used in the Bible to describe someone who's on a journey. They're at point A and they need to go to point B. And when they arrive at point B, they say, I have been prosperous along the journey. Doesn't mean that they found gold coins along the way. It means that they succeeded in what they set out to do. It's also used to describe when a master gives his servant some instructions, a duty that they're supposed to carry out. And if the servant is faithful in doing what the master told them to do, then they were told that they were prosperous. Not that the servant was, got rich in the process, but that the servant did what they were told to do. So when God tells Joshua that he will have success and that he will be prosperous, he's saying you will accomplish what you are setting out to do. You'll fulfill your mission. So what is Joshua's mission? Was it to get rich? No. It was to get over that river. It was to get into that promised land. And God was saying, the key to your success, the key to you accomplishing the mission, Joshua, is for you to get your face in my book. That, that's an incredible thing. You, you think about everything that's happening in Joshua's life and all that he's responsible for. He's leading this massive nation of people who have been camping for 40 years. You would think that he would want to devote some attention to sociology, to political science, to try to figure out, how do I manage this group of people? And God says, no, what you need is my word. He's about to go in and invade all of these nations. You would think that he would want to learn something, study up, brush up a little bit on, you know, military strategy, international diplomacy. No, God says, study my word. Joshua's mission was clear, so the definition of prosperity for him was very clear. And the key to his prosperity was to study God's word. The key to his success in fulfilling his mission was to be familiar with the word of God. So what's our mission? What does it mean for us to be prosperous? We have a very clear mission. It's right here on this banner. Our mission is not to make more dollars. Our mission is to make more disciples. And so we have a different mission from Josh, Joshua. We're not that close. I don't call him Josh. 
We have a different mission. But the key to our success is the same as the key to his success. The word of God. And so God tells uh, Joshua, verse, verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Here's how you lead, Joshua. Teach the Bible all the time. It should always be coming out of your mouth. This is how leaders are supposed to lead. We lead with the word of God. We, we, this is how the people of God are supposed to be. We're supposed to be talking about the word of God. Listen, loved ones, we, listen. We're really excited about what God has been doing. But we got to remember, our name is not Harvest Building Chapel. Our name is Harvest Bible Chapel. And so we need to make sure, and I understand that there's excitement and enthusiasm. I'm feeling that myself. But let's just, let's just be clear. Hey, maybe, maybe we just commit to doing this, that every time we tell someone new about what's happening at our church and how we're moving to a new building, how about we start always with our theme verse? How about we not let... God's word depart from our mouth. So every time, before we say, you'll never believe we've got a building, you say, you never believe. You know, Ephesians 3.20 says God can do far more abundantly. Let me tell you what he's done at our church. To not let the word of God depart from our mouth. And to, and then it says, and it says, and on it you shall meditate day and night. That word meditate means like it's it's a slow, quiet murmur it's 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 someone talking but almost as though they're you can barely hear what they're saying because they're talking to themselves so he's telling joshua get out there don't let the word depart from your mouth in your public life speak the word of god but then in your in your private life in your quiet moments when no one else is listening remind yourself about the truth from god's word you know, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Joshua doesn't, the book doesn't really describe how this happens, but right now, God is directly speaking to Joshua. It doesn't say, you know, did this happen at the tent of meeting? Is he, is he appearing to him at the tabernacle? Did an angel of the Lord come? Uh, did a prophet say this to Joshua? We don't know. Bottom line, God has a special revelation to Joshua in this moment. Now, some of us would be thinking, wow, you know what, that'd be kind of cool for me. I'd welcome that. If God wanted to address me personally the way that he was addressing Joshua, but isn't it interesting that God personally appears to Joshua and then says, hey, Joshua, I came to you to speak to you, to tell you to read my Bible. So if God were to show up and to speak into your life, chances are all he'd be telling you is, read your Bible. You already got that. So you you may never have him reveal himself to you personally, but you got a Bible. Because that's what he'd tell you to do anyway. Don't let it depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Make it a part of who you are. Get into the word personally, and we need to be a church that is publicly and corporately committed to proclaiming the word of God. That is what we are about, is proclaiming his word. And proclaiming his word and living by his word, it takes courage. That's why God says, be strong and courageous. Don't be a coward. Be courageous. Trust in me. Trust in my word. And use use my word to motivate you 
Because when it says the book of the law, it's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. The book of the law was the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the book of the law. That's what Moses wrote and handed to Joshua and said, here, follow this. So the stories of God's faithfulness to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, the story of how God set them free in, uh, from Egypt, the story of how he was so kind and patient with them when they were wandering in the wilderness, these were the kinds of things that Joshua was supposed to be telling the people to encourage them and also reminding himself personally. We've got to obey God's word. Verse 9, he says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. And this is now the third time he says, be strong and courageous. And here's the third key to living with courage. Rely on God's presence. Rely on God's presence. After saying, be strong and courageous, he says, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I love that God specifically said, after he said, be strong and courageous, he says, and what that means is, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. I know for sure there's got to be some people here today who are thinking, okay, I got to be strong. Okay, I got to be, I got to be courageous. And thinking that somehow this is something that you need to well up inside of yourself. I need to be more courageous. I need to suppress or deal with the fear and stop being afraid and start being courageous. You know, I take comfort in the fact that Joshua 1.9 specifically says, do not fear. I take comfort in the fact that the most repeated command in all of Scripture is the command, fear not, do not be afraid, do not be frightened. That fear is this universal problem that all of us struggle with. But the answer to dealing with the fear, why is it that God says, don't be frightened? He says, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's the only way that you're going to deal with fear. That's the only way that you're actually going to live a life of courage is if you trust that God is with you. It's not something that you well up inside yourselves. It has been my experience that the only way to actually be strong and courageous is to admit that you are weak and afraid. Until you admit that you are weak and afraid, you will never be strong and courageous. Because until you understand how weak you are and how afraid you are, you will never turn your eyes completely on God. You will always think, you know what, I'm not afraid. And I'm not weak. I, I, I can do this. And then you will never live a life of courage. God says, get your eyes on me. Admit that you're weak. Admit that you're afraid. And know that I am with you. As I think back about regrets in my life, fear is at the center always. When I think about just really dumb stuff that I did or that I participated in or that I said, a lot of the time it was because of social pressure. I did a lot of dumb things because I was afraid that I would be rejected if I didn't do them. 
I, want, I wanted to fit in. And so I went along with what others were doing. And I, I was afraid. I was afraid of rejection. How many dumb things have you done? Because you were afraid to be rejected by a certain person or a certain group. And then I think about other things. Not just, not, regrets sort of take two forms, don't they? We, there's, there's dumb things we wish we hadn't done. And then there's really good, important things that we neglected that we wish we did do. And when I think about my failures, my failure to actually do what I should have done, fear was right there too. And the reason why I failed in not doing what I was supposed to do was because I feared that I would fail. And I fulfilled my own prophecy. My, 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 my fear gave in to more, and my fear of failure ended up making me a failure because I didn't capitalize on the moment, on the opportunity that God had given to me. Just do a quick audit of your life. Major regrets in your life. What role did fear play? And where was God in that moment? And what were you thinking about him in that moment? Because he was there. He was with you. He was there to help you to say no to what you should have said no to. He was there to help you to say yes to what you should have said yes to. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You know, General George Patton, who famously said he's that great World War II um, military general who said, you know, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. His definition of courage is so shockingly clear. This is the way he defines courage. Courage is fear. Holding on a minute longer. You see, fear can't hold on. Fear is trying to hold on and thinks, you know, it's too confusing, it's too complicated, there's too much confrontation, there's too much cost, I'm afraid, so I'm letting go. The way George Patton defines fear is, defines courage is, it's all those same feelings. To live a life of courage, it doesn't mean that you no longer are afraid anymore. No, you're still afraid. The difference is, is that you're still holding on even though you're afraid. Just for a minute longer. And loved ones, we, we can be confident and hold on. Even though we're afraid, we can have the courage to hold on. Because we know that when we're holding on, even though we're afraid, God is holding on to us. And that is what makes us strong and courageous. You know, Joshua's name wasn't always Joshua. It used to be Hosea. Hosea means deliverer. And in Numbers 13, the story of him when he went in to be one of those spies, the first time they went into the promised land from the south, he came back and he gave that positive report. God's with us. We can do this. And it says there in the book of Numbers that Moses, from that point on, changed his name. Uh, he took the name Hosea, which, which means um, deliverer. He changed it to Yeshua or Joshua. And all he did was he took the name deliverer and he added to it, Y-H-W-H. He added to it God's personal name, I am that I am. And Joshua is the first person in the Old Testament that actually has a name that involves God's personal name. And so Joshua's name changed from being deliverer to God is deliverer. You know, it's, it's interesting, um, the study of, of names. You know, a, a simple name like John 
Uh, depending on where you're from, you know, parts of Europe, if your name is Ian, your name is really John. Or if your name is Jan, your name is John. Or if you're, if you're from South America, your name's Johanny, the, the, your name really is John. Or if you're from a, a Spanish-speaking country, your name is Juan, your name really is John. It's all just the same name, just in different languages. And so Joshua is a Hebrew name, but Joshua in Greek is Jesus. And so if you were a Hebrew speaker and you were talking to Jesus, you would have called him Joshua, Yeshua, the Lord is Deliverer. And Joshua was this great leader. He filled the shoes of of Moses and he led them into the promised land and won the great battle so that the people could live there in safety. But Joshua really is just a picture of The greater Joshua, Jesus, who was going to come, who was going to fill the shoes of every great leader, and who was going to lead a great battle and win a victory with his own blood, and so that people could live forever in eternity. And Joshua was the one who received this incredible command from God to be strong and courageous, and he gets told, you need to go, and he gets promised, I will be with you. But the greater Joshua, Jesus, he gives us a command. And it's very similar to Joshua 1. Joshua was told to go. And Jesus in Matthew 28, 19 tells us, go. Go therefore and make disciples. And then Joshua was promised, I I will be with you wherever you go. And Jesus said, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the mission that we've been called to. And we as a church, right now, we are trusting God for more. And we are trusting that God would use this church in that new place so that more disciples would be made. And so that more of us would go to the nations. And that more of us would trust in a very real way when we think about the cost, when we think about the confusion or questions that we might have, as we think about the challenges that we will face, we have to step forward and do this, trusting that God will be with us always to the end of the age. And so let's bow our heads together and pray. And so, Heavenly Father, I know that there are many things right now that we are facing as a church family. And this incredible opportunity that you have entrusted to us, Lord, and we ourselves, we are going. And going to that building is not a specific mission that you have given to us, but we are going in order to fulfill the mission that you have given, which is to make disciples. And so, God, give us courage to trust you. And Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name, as we contemplate what all of us are being called to do as a church family, Lord, I I pray for those who are facing an individual challenge right now, where courage is so necessary. God, I I pray that by your Spirit, you would give them such a sense of your presence, and that you would remind them of your promise to always be with them wherever they go. 
And so whatever obedience looks like, whatever courage looks like, whatever loving service looks like for each individual situation right now, God, I pray that we would trust, that we would trust and believe that you are who you say you are and that you will do what you said you will do. So help us to trust you, Lord. Make us courageous, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.